Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to talk about one of humanity's oldest afflictions, and that is malaria. What is malaria? Um, How has it been seen throughout history by various peoples? How has it affected various uh, civilizations? And what are some of the challenges that we encounter in dealing with malaria today? So let's get started. To kick things off and uh, lay the groundwork for this episode, first let's talk about what malaria actually is. And a lot of this information I'm going to be pulling from Malaria No More, which is an international organization. Um, They have programs in places like Cameroon, Kenya, and India. Uh, They've been around about 15 years or so, and this is coming from their website where they outline the basics of malaria. So malaria is a disease of the blood that is caused by the plasmodium parasite, which is transmitted from person to person by a particular type of mosquito. The malaria parasite, according to the website, quote, it says there are more than 1,000 species of malaria parasite. The deadliest and most common in Africa is known as Plasmodium falciparum or falciparum. Once the parasite enters the human body, it lodges itself in the liver where it multiplies approximately 10,000 times. Two weeks after entering the body, the parasite bursts into the bloodstream where it begins infecting red blood cells, end quote. Some of the symptoms, um, they begin 10 days to four weeks after infection, although a person may feel ill as early as seven days later, and symptoms include fever, headache, and vomiting. Now, this is tricky because, you know, symptoms like fever, headache, and vomiting, uh, that could be any number of things. So, you know, right off the bat, if you're in a tropical country, And uh, let's say you didn't get your your malaria treatment before going there and you have fever, headache and vomiting. Don't like just jump the gun and be like, oh, I have malaria. Uh, But definitely be aware that this is something uh, that may have happened. And a lot of doctors will counsel their patients before traveling to tropical zones, malaria heavy areas to get a treatment before you go. So how does uh, how does how do you get this really? We mentioned that it's the mosquito, but not all mosquitoes actually transmit malaria. Uh, according to this website again, Malaria No More, the female Anopheles mosquito is the only mosquito that transmits malaria. Uh, she primarily bites between the hours of 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. So it's a it's a nighttime feeding thing which is why sleeping under an insecticide-treated mosquito net each night is crucial in the prevention of malaria. So if uh, it ever occurs to you to try to uh, get involved in the global fight against malaria, one of the primary things that charities and international humanitarian organizations will spend their money on are these mosquito nets um, so that people can sleep in peace without uh, worrying about catching malaria when they're at their most vulnerable. 
Furthermore, uh, malaria in the United States was actually eliminated in 1951. However, um, at least 2,100 Americans are diagnosed annually, and this always follows travel to uh, countries that are endemic with malaria. So it says if you're traveling to a malaria risk country, uh, consult your health care provider and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of what we already mentioned. How does it actually kill you? Um, quote, if drugs are not available or if the parasites are resistant to them, malaria infection can develop to anemia. That's uh, where your red blood cell count is, is really, really low. Hypoglycemia or a cerebral malaria in which the capillaries carrying blood to the brain are blocked. Cerebral malaria can cause coma, lifelong learning disabilities, and death. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts as to what malaria is, uh, and we touched on briefly kind of where it exists and what can happen if you get it. Okay, now let's uh, move on to a brief history of malaria. But just before we get started, uh, just a very, very small correction of the segment that you just heard. I said that there are more than 1,000 species of malaria parasite. What I meant to say was there are more than 100 species of malaria parasite. So it's, it's a factor of times 10. So I uh, didn't want to confuse you. But yeah, there's more than 100 species of malaria parasite instead of 1,000. Now, I'm going to be drawing from an article called Saving Lives, Buying Time, colon, Economics of Malaria Drugs in an Age of Resistance. And this was put out by the Institute of Medicine Committee on the Economics of Anti-Malarial Drugs, published in Washington, D.C., National Academies Press in 2004. Specifically, I'm going to be drawing from section number five, A Brief History of Malaria. Malaria has existed for thousands of years, and it is infecting people today, just as it infected people in ancient civilizations. So it's one of those things that's uh, been afflicting people for a very, very long time, uh, similar to something like leprosy or something, where leprosy is even mentioned in the New Testament and uh, stuff like that. So according to this article, in the 20th century alone, Malaria claimed between 150 million and 300 million lives, accounting for 2 to 5% of all deaths. Um, although its chief sufferers today are the poor of sub-Saharan Africa, now when uh, international workers, government workers, scholars, academics talk about sub-Saharan Africa, they're talking about what was traditionally called Black Africa, which is sub just means below. Uh, so they're talking about the part of Africa that's below the Sahara Desert. Uh, North Africa is mostly uh, desert peoples like... Uh, uh, Berbers and Arabs and stuff like that. But once you cross the Sahara, you get into uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, in addition to Sub-Saharan Africa, there's Asia, the Amazon Basin, and other tropical regions. Now, this is key. Malaria is very, very much closely tied to the tropical regions of the Earth. 40% uh, 
of the world's population still lives in areas where malaria is transmitted. So this isn't um, this isn't something that we've kind of won the battle against. This is still a major daily struggle for millions and millions of people across the world. Uh, there's lots of ancient writings, artifacts, tablets, stuff like that, where these ancient civilizations have talked about malaria. Uh, a malaria antigen was recently detected in Egyptian remains dating from 3200 and 1304 uh, BCE. And uh, keep in mind, again, this article is from 2004. Indian writings of the Vedic period. This is when um, these scriptures called the Vedas were written. And just as a timeline, that's 1500 to 800 BCE. Malaria in this text is referred to as the, quote, king of diseases, end quote. And in fact, in 270 BCE, the Chinese medical canon, so there was this uh, text that was put together by ancient Chinese doctors, it was called the Nei Qin, and it linked uh, certain fevers that people were getting with um, enlargement of the spleen, which is uh, sometimes a symptom of malaria, and they blamed... Uh, so. On the one hand, it's like, yes, this is a very scientific finding. But on the other hand, they blamed malaria's headaches, chills, and fevers on three demons. Uh, one of which was carrying a hammer, another a pail of water, and the third a stove. So that's the thing about ancient medicine is sometimes, you know, the findings are right on the money. And you're surprised because you're like, oh, like, wow, that's, that's very accurate. You know, these people had almost a modern insight into this. But then... They'll take it one step further and be like, yes, it's because of these three demons. But uh, in any case, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the ancient Greek poet Homer. Uh, he mentions malaria in the Iliad and other writers like Aristophanes and Aristotle and Plato and Sophocles have also mentioned it in their writings. Um, scientists have tried to find out kind of how malaria made its way to Europe. Um, because yes, it's very closely tied with the tropical regions, but it's uh, it can go north of the tropics if there's still an area that's very uh, warm and moist. So according to this article, uh, malaria's probable arrival in Rome in the first century um, of the common era was a turning point in European history. Quote, from the African rainforest, the disease most likely traveled down the Nile to the Mediterranean, then spread east to the Fertile Crescent. Uh, the Fertile Crescent is the area that was called Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, which today uh, is pretty much Iraq, like most of it is in Iraq, but uh, some of it spills over into neighboring countries. And then north to Greece, Greek traders and colonists brought it to Italy. Uh, from there, Roman soldiers and merchants uh, essentially carried it to the corners of the empire. What's really interesting about this is uh, apparently many historians speculate that falciparum malaria, uh, which, which we said in the intro is the, the deadliest form of malaria for humans, may have contributed to the fall of Rome uh, by making people weak and sickly. There was a malaria epidemic uh, around the city of Rome in the year 79 of the Common Era. And it took, uh, it, it came out of the fertile marshy croplands that surrounded the city. And uh, apparently there was mass abandonment of farms uh, 
by the farmers to, to kind of uh, flee this. Uh, people were getting sick. And, and again, you know, we don't have the modern insight here that, you know, if this affliction popped up in an ancient community, uh, you could think it would be any number of things. Some people speculated, oh, well, you know, we saw a shooting star a week ago and this is an omen from the gods or maybe the gods are punishing us or any number of things. Um, the area around Rome would remain sparsely populated uh, until the 20th century. And one of the reasons for this was the malaria in the region. If we talk about Asia, um, in India, the earliest Indi Indian civilizations were in a place called the Indus Valley in the north, which is relatively dry. But as they recorded population surpluses, uh, colonists from this area moved south to an area called the Ganges Valley. The Ganges is, uh, is uh, another river. It's actually a very important river in Indian history. But this area was a lot uh, hotter and wetter. And uh, again, according to this article, people in the south of India were disproportionately plagued by malaria and other mosquito and waterborne illnesses, uh, which may explain why in a lot of these ancient and medieval periods, um, the southern kingdoms may not have been as strong or influential as the northern kingdoms. And that kind of dovetails nicely into the next point is if we move to China, um, one of the earliest civilizations in China is the Yellow uh, River Valley. And it says here, quote, millions of peasants who left the Yellow River for hot and humid rice paddies bordering the Yangtze encountered similar hazards. Due to the unequal burden of disease for centuries, the development of China's south lagged behind its north, end quote. And if you know anything about Chinese history, most of it is alternating periods of fractured, semi-independent kingdoms warring with each other, and then an emperor or a dynasty or something will come along and unite them for a while, and then they'll split apart again. And that's pretty much the recurring history of China. And so historians, according to this article, have speculated that that may have been one of the reasons why these southern kingdoms sometimes were weaker than the northern kingdoms. So, so that's super interesting. Um, the idea of malaria in the New World, um, they've done some research into this, and there are some scientists who speculate that uh, when people came from Asia to North America over the Bering Land Bridge, uh, they may have carried malaria with them, but that's not firmly established. Uh, there are no records of malaria in the Americas before European explorers. Um, carried it over. So, so they're carrying this old world disease and imagine what that does in comparison with a lot of the other old world diseases they brought over. Um, the worst of these by far was smallpox. Um, so maybe I'll do an episode uh, on smallpox in the future because that's another really, really like ancient disease that has totally changed history in, in so many ways. But anyway, I digress. Um, African slaves uh, who were initially brought to the New World, uh, they had a little bit of resistance. And one of the reasons for this is because malaria is so endemic in Sub-Saharan or Black Africa, some there's a percentage of the uh, population that has a mutation in the structure of their red blood cells. Um, they get a little harder, and uh, instead of being like squishy kind of donut shaped, uh, they become a little more crescent-shaped. And that's called uh, sickle cell because they, they look like the blade 
of a sickle. And this is a trait that is carried by a percentage of Africans and uh, today African-Americans. Now, I mean, it's a good thing because it gives you a little bit of resistance against malaria. But um, if two people with this sickle cell gene uh, have babies, there's a chance that the baby will have this condition called sickle cell anemia, which is also very bad. Um, it can lead to things like blood clots and health complications and stuff like that. And that's a direct result of this blood mutation that came from people developing some kind of resistance to this mosquito-borne illness. Now, in the United States, um, malaria, you know, was a big deal in a lot of regions, uh, in the hotter regions of the United States until well into the 20th century. And there's a part in this article where they talk about uh, what role it had to play in the Civil War. Um, it says that uh, it struck presidents from Washington to Lincoln and it weakened Civil War soldiers by the hundreds of thousands. And it gives a specific example, which is very interesting if you know your Civil War history. In 1862, Washington, D.C. and its surroundings were so malarious. Uh, that's actually a new word that I learned from this article, malarious is if something has a lot of malaria. Um, so, so malarious that General McClellan's army en route to Yorktown, so that's in Virginia, was stopped in its tracks. It goes on later to say that malaria was introduced to California by gold rush settlers. So they're chasing that gold west, they brought it with them. And as they traversed the continent, um, they introduced it to areas that had not had it before, so a lot of Native Americans uh, died. And then if you move into the 20th century, it says, quote, until the Tennessee Valley Authority brought hydroelectric power and modernization to the rural South in the 1930s, malaria drained the physical and economic health of the entire region. Now, this is very interesting, too, because I've done a bit of reading and I've, and I've listened to other podcasts as to some of the physiological kind of health related reasons why for so many decades the South lagged behind the North and possibly other regions of the country in development. Um, a lot of it is the lasting economic devastation of the Civil War. But here we have another theory that it was malaria, uh, because what malaria can do if it doesn't kill you, it, it makes you sickly and weak and saps you of your energy. And uh, there's another kind of parasite that lives in the South that was um, it's speculated to have spread rapidly there because a lot of people went barefoot called hookworm. And hookworm uh, can do the same thing. So here you have two possible reasons why Southerners were seen, um, especially in the few decades after the Civil War, they were seen by Northerners as maybe like weak or lazy or mentally deficient. Um, it could it could be the crippling heat, but also, you know, take into account things like malaria and hookworm. Malaria was also a huge deal in World War II uh, in the Pacific theater. So when American troops went to Europe to fight in places like France and the Netherlands, like they didn't have to worry about malaria. But on all these little islands in the Pacific where they're fighting the Japanese, um, malaria took down a lot of U.S. soldiers. During the early days of the Pacific campaign, according to this article, more soldiers fell to malaria than to enemy forces. The United States premier public health agency, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, this is the CDC, the same CDC that you've heard about in the news during the coronavirus epidemic. Um, so, you know, big deal, big uh, US government agency. It was founded because of malaria. 
Um, by the time of the Vietnam War, the American military discovered that drug-resistant malaria was already widespread in Southeast Asia, a harbinger of the worldwide hazard it was destined to become. So that is very concerning. As you get into the middle and into the second half of the 20th century, scientists across the world are starting to find um, you know, malaria that's resistant to drugs. Uh, and that's definitely a big issue. Like, uh, they're not all uh, resistant, but uh, that's definitely something to think about. Let's take a minute to jump back to malaria's role in African history. Um, of all the regions in the world, malaria has had the deepest impact on the trajectory of African history. So again, uh, in this article, they mention about how malaria is a powerful defensive pathogen. Uh, now, I talked about that before, where it's a blood mutation that was developed by some people who survived or inherited this kind of resistance to malaria, where your, your red blood cells, instead of being squishy and donut shaped, they get... Uh, crescent shaped and stuff like that. Now, where does this uh, where does this come into play with the history of Africa? Well, when the article says that it's a powerful defensive pathogen, what they're saying is that that's one of the reasons why it was so difficult for Europeans to establish any kind of lasting colonies in Africa until well into the 19th century. And that period was called the scramble for Africa. And in fact, I recorded an episode on it. So check it out if you have some time. Africa's colonization, um, the first people to kind of go down the coast of West Africa were the Portuguese. And this was in the late 1400s and early 1500s. And they were the first people to encounter malaria in Africa. And it killed a lot of them. For the next three centuries, whenever European powers tried to establish outposts on the continent, they were repelled time and time again by malaria, yellow fever, and other tropical scourges. Um, so yeah, definitely, it's uh, they were having a rough time. Now, you can take this one step further. Quote, by the 18th century, the dark specter of disease earned West and Central Africa the famous epitaph, quote, the white man's grave, end quote. Epitaph is just... Um, I guess maybe if there's a few people listening that don't know what that word means. Epitaph is a message that you put on a tombstone. So yeah, <laughs> very, uh, very death center. This, uh, so this region was called the white man's grave because just so many people went out there and uh, yes, they would prepare for things like hostile natives uh, or lack of water. Like they would bring water and stuff like that. But uh, they just didn't know uh, about malaria and, and how it spread. Uh, sorry, they knew about malaria, but uh, they didn't know how it spread or, or really how to treat it, so stuff like that. We are going to get into that uh, now, actually. So there was a, a doctor in the French army, um, this guy Charles-Louis Alphonse Laveron. Uh, now, he lived from 1845 to 1922, and he was a doctor during the Franco-Prussian War. Now, 
Later on in his life, he wrote this book on military medicine. And the traditional wisdom uh, regarding malaria was that it was a disease restricted to low-lying humid plains. But he noted that it could also occur in temperate zones and that not all of these tropical areas actually had it. So it's like, hmm, what's going on here? This is actually one of my favorite uh, facts of this whole episode is it says, although malaria had been linked with swamps, Ever since the condition known as Roman fever inspired the name malaria, Lavarin knew from contemporary scientific articles that many diseases previously ascribed to miasmas or evil vapors were in fact caused by microbes. And uh, a quote from him directly is he says, swamp fevers are due to a germ. Now, why did I find this so interesting? So before this period, malaria was seen as something that uh, just hung out in swamps and people believed that it was the swamp air um, that caused it. So evil vapors, miasmas, stuff like that. The word malaria comes from Latin. Um, the first half, mal, uh, comes from malus, which is Latin for bad. And mal in French, like M-A-L, uh, mal, uh, just also means like bad or, or ill or something like that. Aria comes from the Latin word for air. So mal aria literally means bad air. Uh, so anyway, that's a, that's some, uh, some Latin geekiness for you guys. So hopefully you find that as interesting as I did. But yeah, mal aria is uh, just bad air, swamp, swamp air, basically. Um, now, this guy, uh, this doctor, he was transferred during his time in the army to uh, an outpost on Algeria's North African coast. And because this is a warm region, it gave him a chance to test his theories. On the 20th of October, 1880, he's looking through this crude microscope. Uh, keep in mind, this is 1880, so, you know, microscopes were still pretty basic. And he was looking at the blood of a soldier and he saw crescent shaped bodies that were nearly transparent, except for one small dot of pigment. And by analyzing this and compare, uh, comparing it to previous findings about uh, this pigment, this little dot in these blood cells, he was able to isolate um, kind of these compounds that uh, were identifying marks for uh, malaria. But the reason why I'm paraphrasing this is because this is still a scientific journal article and there's a lot of like very technical language and stuff, stuff that I, I don't understand. I mean, I don't have a lot of uh, uh, training in uh, biology or biochemistry or epidemiology or anything like that. Um, but he was able to compare this to the spleens and blood of uh, malarious, uh, of malaria victims uh, and worked on the kind of findings of several uh, previous investigators who had been looking into this uh, this um, mystery of malaria. Now, in doing this, he ultimately recognized four distinct forms in human blood that would prove to be the malaria parasite in different stages of its life cycle. So through his research, he was able to map out kind of what malaria looked like as it was uh, created uh, propagated as it died, stuff like that. And keep in mind, you know, this is, this is a long time ago. So I think this is, uh, very, very impressive. Now, initially a lot of people didn't believe him. Uh, it says here that his initial findings were viewed with, uh, skepticism. Um, but six, uh, years later it was confirmed. So there was more than one other doctor that, uh, confirmed his findings. So there was this doctor called Camilo Golgi, um, 
who confirmed it, and he ended up winning a Nobel Prize in 1906 for it. But it, but it was it was for something else. One year later, in 1907, Laverin received the Nobel Prize for discovering the single-celled protozoan that caused malaria in 1907. Like, you know, imagine that. So, in any case, the uh, rest of the article. Um, deals with kind of over the years all of the different uh treatments that uh, have been developed for malaria but there's really only one that i want to talk about it's like the original one the first one and one of the most commonly used today All right, so the treatment uh, that I teased at a little bit is called quinine. And again, like I said, it was the uh, biggest and uh, it was kind of the original uh, treatment for malaria. So again, it's pronounced quinine. I, I had to actually look that up because a lot of times when you see it spelled, you're like, is that quinine? Uh, anything like that. But yeah, quinine. Now, the pharmaceutical compound known as quinine, it comes from the bitter bark of a high altitude tree that's native to South America. So obviously before the Europeans could get their hands on it, they had to get to South America first. So this uh, compound did not exist in the Middle Ages or anything like that. It uh, it was during the, the period after uh, Europeans made it to the New World. So as legend has it, the Spanish Countess of Chinchon was treated with the tree's bark in Peru in the 1600s. For many years, she was credited with bringing the bark, uh, and it was variously known as Jesuit's powder, Cardinal's powder, or Peruvian bark, back to Spain. However, since she later died in Peru, it's far more likely that Cardinal Juan de Lugo, or another Jesuit priest, introduced the remedy to Europe. In 1742, Linnaeus named the tree uh, Sinchona or, or Kinchona after the Countess accidentally omitting the first H in her name. Linnaeus was this was this guy in the, the 1700s. He was a naturalist and he is one of the pioneers of the Latin naming system for, for living things. Um, so if you just Google his name, like uh, it's spelled L-I-N-N-A-E-U-S. Um, He's one of the pioneer, uh, pioneers of what we call taxonomy, so the, the differentiation of living things into categories based on uh, physical traits. So, yeah. In 1820, the French chemists Joseph Pelletier and Jean-Binan Carmontou isolated quinine from chinchona bark. And because of this, it quickly became a favored therapy for intermittent fever throughout the world. Um, during the 19th century, more and more Europeans were making their way to tropical uh, zones, and uh, quinine came with them. British and Dutch botanical explorers combed the, Andi the Andean cloud forest for Chinchona in order to establish plantations. So people recognized the medical opportunity, but also the economic opportunity. So they start sending all these explorers to South America to find this tree. They wanted to introduce the tree to other hot regions where they had more of a land claim, uh, places like India, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, and the Dutch East Indies, uh, which is now Indonesia. However, a lot of these transplants only produced low yield quinine crops. Now, 
Eventually, just for a few guilders, like a, a few dollars essentially, the Dutch government purchased 14 pounds of chinchona seed collected by this guy called Charles Ledger, and he was an Englishman living in Peru. And they grafted it onto another tree. So the little seedlings that this guy Ledger, uh, um, you know, sprouted were called Chinchona Ledgeriana, and they grafted it onto another tree called Chinchona Sukirubra. And by doing this, the Dutch soon dominated Chinchona cultivation uh, because they were growing it in their colonies. And they eventually produced 80% of the world's quinine on the Indonesian island of Java uh, before it was invaded in World War II. So that it be, because uh, the Dutch had a hard time in World War II. Uh, so the, the home country was invaded by the Nazis and occupied. And then their colonies in the Far East were invaded by the Japanese and occupied. So there weren't really a lot of Dutch areas in the world during World War II that were free. Now, this is critical because, because the Japanese took this supply and occupied this area and it was producing 80% of the world's quinine. It meant that the supply of quinine to the Allies was now cut off. Um, so there were a lot of kind of uh, research initiatives to find either alternate sources of chinchona bark uh, from which to synthesize quinine or to find synthetic substitutes. Now, the article goes on to say that quinine remains an important and effective malaria treatment today. Uh, and this is despite sporadic observations of quinine resistance. And that's kind of uh, what we were talking about before. Uh, the rest of the article is about a lot of these different treatments, and I'm not really going to go into them. Things like uh, chloroquine, uh, sulfadoxine, pyrimethamine, <laughs> mefloquine, artemisinin, <laughs> stuff like that. So that's very technical, and unless you're a biology major or a scientist or an epidemiologist, it's kind of like, bah, uh, I don't know how interesting that stuff is. What I wanted to do in this episode was... Um, give a modern context, but also to, to give a little bit of historical flavor as to uh, what malaria is. Let's cap things off with a little bit, uh, I'm going to hit you with some data and some facts of malaria today. And this comes from the World Health Organization. Um, in 2019, there were an estimated 229 million cases of malaria worldwide, and the number of deaths in the same year stood at 409,000. Now, the group that's most vulnerable to it is children under the age of five. In 2019, they accounted for 67% of all malaria deaths worldwide. In terms of where it's most prominent is the World Health Organization African region carries a disproportionately high share of the global malaria burden. In 2019, the region was home to 94% of malaria cases and deaths, so they're definitely having a rough time over there. Total funding for malaria control and elimination reached an estimated US $3 billion in 2019. Um, contributions from governments of endemic countries amounted to uh, 900 million, representing 31% of total funding. So 69% of the funding uh, for these countries that are struggling with malaria comes from actually outside the country. Um, in 2018, the falciparum um, strain or variant or, or whatever accounted for 99.7% 
of estimated malaria ca uh, cases in the African region and 50% in the Southeast Asia region, 71% in the Eastern Mediterranean, and 65% in the Western uh, Pacific region. So that's the falsiparum one. That's that's the big one. That's the, the, the common one, the killer one. Now, there is another one called uh, Vivax or Vivax, and that's the predominant parasite in the region of the Americas, uh, where it, in, it represents 75% percent of malaria cases. All right, well, that's going to do it uh, for us here today. The fight against malaria continues every day in many, many countries in the form of insecticide-treated mosquito nets, anti-malarial drugs, um, spraying for mosquitoes stuff like that so if you were just curious of like well how are they actually dealing with these things uh they call it vector control so you're controlling the the mosquitoes themselves uh rather than just like ignoring the mosquitoes and trying to treat all the sick people who already have it but uh anyway in that case uh i hope this was interesting i hope that uh you know what malaria is now and kind of a little bit of the influence it's had on the history of the world. I, I chose this topic because, again, it's really one of those ancient, ancient afflictions that is still so prominent uh, in the world. Uh, other things that have totally affected history just as deeply, things like smallpox and the Black Plague, uh, a lot of those, it's, it's not as bad as it was in centuries past. And the difference with malaria is malaria is still really bad. So definitely something to think about. All right. Well, I want to thank you so, so much for listening. This has been Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.